Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Creation Theatre Podcast, um, where I have grabbed Laura Wright, um, who is known to us as the co-director of Creation's uh, Duchess of Malfi, and she wears many university-type hats as well, which I won't try to cover, maybe I'll let her cover. Um, but yeah, we're just going to talk all things Malfi, um, which is currently in rehearsals um, and will be starting uh, performances in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so Laura, tell us, tell us some of your hats. Yes, um, so uh, certainly at University College Oxford, I'm a stipendary lecturer, so I teach uh, 16th to 18th century literature, uh, which covers Duchess of Melfi, of course, amongst many other plays, Um, and I specialise in sound effects, which is how I ended up being so fascinated by Duchess of Malfi, I started writing about it as a play that is full of deceptive noises and strange st- uh, sounds and screams and um, got drawn into it that way. So that's my sort of uh, academic background to Duchess. My creation theatre background <laughs> came last summer when I was uh, teaming up with creation to do a read-through of uh, Shakespeare and Fletcher's play, Henry VIII which uh, was supposed to be a big, uh, lavish historical production. Of course, that didn't happen with the pandemic, but we managed to make it happen on Zoom, which was uh, wonderful and really exciting, uh, especially at that moment of such isolation. And so uh, I got back in touch with Creation earlier this year and said, uh, should we continue this exploration of early modern drama and should we do Duchess of Melfi? And here we are. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's one that we have never tackled. I feel like it's, it's sort of bang on the creation repertoire, but for some reason the director's never suggested it or the venue's never come up that was kind of asking for it. So yeah, it's lovely to be kind of, to have it chucked in the way and be like, all right then, <laughs> let's have a crack at that one. Um, so it's one of sort of not being Shakespeare. This is probably really annoying to early modern English folk, sorry, but not being Shakespeare, <laughs> it's not particularly one of the kind of more well-known, I suppose, um, uh, texts of the time um, so let's talk about why that might be as a starter and then you can quickly give us uh, a little kind of synopsis of, of what it, what it, what happens why it's interesting kind of why why we're staging it so yeah why do you think it gets sort of left behind a little bit absolutely I mean the as a Webster play it's the best known of of his plays yeah. and certainly amongst early modern plays it's probably one of the few non-Shakespeare plays that we do see performed at all but I think audiences are less familiar with um, Duchess than they would be with most of Shakespeare it's uh, mm. there have been productions of course but there isn't um, maybe the access that other um, other plays allow One thing that has been really good um, and something we've been thinking about in rehearsal is that it's often an AS or A-level text. So it is a text that people might encounter in the course of studying English um, alongside Shakespeare. But what we really didn't want to do was make it a sort of, um, oh, this isn't quite Shakespeare way of reading the play. We wanted to Mm. look at it in its own right as as a really glamorous and gory and fascinating text. Um... And certainly from my point of view as a researcher, I've been really interested in the way that it survived over the centuries. So uh, not just thinking about you know, its performance in, in 1613, but thinking about uh, how that has been restaged um, in the UK and US up until the present day. Yeah, because it does. It's 
like like I think a lot of kind of we find and our audience find there are all there are through lines there are such through lines you can pick up a play that's 400 years old and still feel like it's dealing with grief or gender or jealousy or and I feel like this is exactly that it has so much resonance um with kind of what's what's going on in the world at the moment that it does yeah it does benefit from a kind of fresh pair of eyes rather than saying oh yeah this is something that's in a kind of history box Absolutely. And it's been a, a big part of our rehearsal process, actually, just in some ways, uh, thinking about the language, you know, what are we saying here? And, mm. and what would it mean to say this in 2021? Uh, and some of it has just been thinking thematically. Uh, I've been speaking a lot with uh, Annabelle, who is playing our Duchess, about how powerful this woman is, how um, mm. eloquent, how able to express what she wants, how unashamed of her own sexuality, in many ways, it's surprisingly modern um, and we've been really pulling that out of the play in rehearsal. Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost the kind of um, read-through I watched is it's almost she's she's the most modern character in it. It's like everybody else is stuck in some sort of dark ages of, of uh, gender non-equality and she's the one who, who can sort of see. But yeah, sadly, it doesn't, doesn't work out that well for her. No, <laughs> that is think, true. Just to go super lowbrow on this, it made me think of all the of the Britney Spears documentary that's bouncing around at the moment. It made me feel of that kind of powerful woman who's sort of undone by her circumstances. And yeah, she's perfectly capable, but somehow is made incapable by, by the world around her. That's really interesting. And it's an interesting parallel as well, because of course... The Duchess is being controlled by her brothers who, mm. uh, from their perspective, are doing everything they should do to look after her and keep her safe. Certainly that's the story they can tell themselves. And we're seeing this, um, I suppose, with Brittany too. You know, is it about looking after a woman or is it about controlling her? Um, and certainly because we've got these two brothers playing with the Duchess across the, the course of Duchess of Malfi, it's... It's hard to, um, I suppose, disentangle love and loyalty and family bonds from a more insidious type of control. Oh man, it's so great! <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting. Um, so, do you want to do you want to give us your quick um, kind of synopsis? Um, of yeah, kind of, oh, I feel like we're, we're sort of, we're, yeah, we're talking around the themes, but it it might be useful to just kind of do a quick summary and then we can get into it. <laughs> Yes, so uh, when we open, um, the Duchess is a widow, she's been married before, um, and her two brothers, uh, Ferdinand and the Cardinal, are very keen to stress that they would not like her to get married again. She is not particularly uh, swayed by this, she therefore uh, seduces or uh, chats up her, um, <laughs> her head of household, who is Antonio, who is um, a very lovely guy but a, a guy of low rank um, and this is something that uh, is sort of the match that lights the flame of Ferdinand who cannot uh, handle his, his sister um, falling in love with someone else. Mm. There's certainly a question uh, here whether his desire is a desire to control her or a desire for her and that is something that the play is always thinking about. Why is Ferdinand so insistent that his sister can't marry again? So uh, throughout the course of the play, once she has married Antonio and um, had children, this is found out by a character called Bossola. And Bossola is uh, the spy here. He's hired by 
Ferdinand to keep watch over the Duchess and report back on everything that she's doing. So um, this all ends very badly and um, I won't spoil exactly how it ends, but anyone at all familiar with uh, uh, early modern tragedy will not be surprised to, to hear that uh, by the fifth act we're in something of a bloodbath. It's not so, one of the ones where everyone gets married at the end. It's, it's the certainly other kind. not. It's the other kind. It's it's not the marriage. It's the death kind. I like to think um, that there's one guy who's always cast as like the one who wanders in at the end of the bloodbath and is like, oh, oh no, what's happened here? Yes, <laughs> like the, this bloke the, is just typecast. Absolutely. Yeah. The the Horatio at the end of Hamlet. The exactly. oh well. Yeah. 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 I'll do what I can. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. It's, that brings me, I suppose, to um, one of my questions, which was obviously we we had we've had two sort of full read throughs of this since we started the process. The first one, the full read through of the whole script, was something yes. like four hours, um, and you have somehow miraculously managed to hack it down to just over an hour. So I wanted to ask about the process of editing and cutting, and sort of how easy was that, and have you had to kind of set whole characters and storylines aside, and yeah, what's the how how did the cut go? <laughs> well, the process was amazing. I really enjoyed it. It was mm. sort of endless cups of tea and sitting with the text and yeah. really being uh, brutal about it. So the first cut that I did was for plot. We were limited in a really good way. So we have uh, as a cast uh, of seven, we have X number of characters and therefore um, everyone else was you know, going by the wayside. This meant that I was putting lines uh, given to minor characters, if they were really good lines and I didn't want to lose mm. them, into the, the mouths of, of major characters. So the first um, cut that I made was just, how do we get all of the important beats of this story without um, having kind of the multiple characters around court who often act uh, to kind of explain the narrative? So um, once I had done that, and sometimes that meant lifting out whole scenes and sometimes that meant reducing them, I also wanted to make sure that we weren't losing the language because uh, Webster is writing Duchess of Malfi in such a way that a lot of the characters sort of stop and speak really beautiful poetry. Um, and I didn't want that to be lost for the sake of speed. So I hope the balance has worked out um, okay. Uh, certainly it's looking good in rehearsal right now. Um, and it just basically means we've got the central skeleton of the plot, but um, it makes it more claustrophobic. So rather mm. than um, having lots of characters, there's a sense that the, the players that we've got are in this echo chamber. They're only talking to each other and they can't really escape the conversations that they're having. So in some ways, having a, a limited cast has for me anyway, made it a more interesting play. It's made it kind of tighter. It's got, it's got some such good sort of bad, like pantomime baddies as well. There's almost a moment where if, you know, where Bossler up, crops up again or the Cardinal appears and you're sort of like, oh no, it's you again. Yeah, these, these guys again, absolutely. Yeah, kind of, you've got no, yeah, you've got no lovely kind of, um, yeah, sort of, sort of stuff going on in the sidelines. It's like, oh no, another one and another one. Yeah. Um, and yes. was there anything that you, obviously, you know, you've, you've made the cuts you've made for a reason, but what was the, what was the hardest character or kind of subplot or, or scene to, to take the knife to? <laughs> I suppose for me, I was always sad to lose the Duchess's lines. Um, mm. 
obviously I've kept um, a lot of them, but very often cut down longer speeches. So um, she, she has some really just beautiful turns of phrase. We didn't need them in the stricter sense of keeping the plot flowing, but she is so eloquent and so um, sort of her worldview is so beautiful in many places. So I kept what I could, but she was always the one who, yeah, I, I was deleting lines from my Word document with a, a sort of um, oh. wistful smile. <laughs> Let that one go. Yeah. Is there something in, in early modern performance that, where plays are expected to be this long? Like how, how is it that we sort of, we can handle, you know, maybe an hour each way with an interval and a full Hamlet or a full Duchess is so long? What, how... What's happened in the middle? Well, there's certainly a sense with Duchess of Malfi that this is not the... There's no intention that this full text would ever be performed mm. as is. It makes it a, a reading text so you can enjoy the poetry. But mm. I think, I mean, one thing we've even been talking about in um, rehearsal is that our process inadvertently has been very much like a kind of early modern process, which is to say you make do with what you've got. You know, yeah. you... You enjoy uh, having the number of cast you have. You enjoy the medium that you've got. Um, you you add and you take away and you cut and you use space quite freely. Um, and certainly we've done that. What's particularly interesting about Duchess of Malfi is that um, the title page as printed actually handles this question directly. Mm. So uh, it says the tragedy of the Duchess of Malfi as it was presented privately at the Blackfriars and publicly at the Globe by the King's Majesty's servants. The perfect and exact copy, with diverse things printed that the length of the play would not bear in the presentment. Which is to say, <laughs> like the stuff, exactly, the stuff here that we couldn't put on stage, it would have been too long. But we're giving you everything so that you can almost have the kind of complete version of it. So... I that's think so good. That's like every yeah. director ever who's like, I think this scene should be 25 minutes. <laughs> and somewhere there's a producer being like, come on, come on, interval, get there. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. So I don't think there's any sense that we, um, we, we can sort of just handle less drama than an early modern audience. I don't think they were standing there for four they hours. They more patient than us, mm. no. Oh, yeah, of course they were standing. So what, what is happening in the world in, in 1613? Because it's... It's very evocative, that idea that it's, you know, performed at the Blackfriars and then at the Globe. And you think you've got a picture of certainly inside the theatre and the kind of watching. But what happens to that audience when they step onto the street? Like, what what's going on? Yes, I mean, what we've got is we're 10 years into the reign of King James. And there's certainly a sense at the beginning of uh, the Duchess of Malfi that there's a frustration with the idea of court corruption it's set in Italy, but this is often read as basically a way of talking about England without explicitly talking about England. Um, but certainly there's a fear of uh, a kind of laziness and, um, as Antonio puts it in this um, evocative speech that begins the play, uh, there's a sense that the court is like a poisoned fountain, right, where um, everything is being polluted from the head down. So maybe that sort of frustration, that lethargy uh, with 10 years of, of James on the throne. One thing I'm particularly fascinated by, um, and it came out a little bit more when we were doing Henry VIII last year, is uh, the death of Prince Henry, James's uh, oldest son in 1610. 
um, and thinking about what that sudden shift means uh, in terms of national identity and, and, and thinking about the future. With the loss of Henry, there is a sense that what everyone had imagined the future would be isn't going to happen. And there's this sort of lingering sense through the Duchess of Malfi and even right at the very end uh, that what what matters really is is the children you leave behind and the the legacy of your life. And I think that's something I'm interested in in thinking more about what it means to have a nation, perhaps not in immediate mourning, this is a couple of years later, but readjusting their hopes for the future. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, I noticed in the um, in the version that we've got there, every so often, different characters sort of wander off into a kind of parable about like a salmon or <laughs> these weird moments yes. where it's all kind of, you know, bam, bam, like thick of it, caught happenings and back and forth and sneaking around in corridors. And then someone will sort of sit back and tell it, tell this sort of weird fable. Like where, where do they come from? What, what are they doing there? Well, one thing we've been talking about in rehearsal is that the people who are storytellers in the play are Ferdinand and the Duchess. Mm. They are twins. And in a way that I think I hadn't even quite seen before rehearsal, is that they, they have really similar language, similar ways of speaking. Mm. They use um, similar metaphors and they both tell stories. So we have the Duchess telling a story about a salmon and a dogfish to mm. illustrate the idea that... Um, rank or being highborn means nothing at the end of the day mm-hmm. um and uh ferdinand does this too he tells a, a story about three brothers one of whom is reputation and he does yes. this to to warn the duchess about her behavior so i'm really fascinated by those inset speeches one thing that um i've been talking to the cast about a little bit is webster's use of commonplaces so he writes these um couplets and they are quotable. They're sort of little aphorisms or pieces of, of knowledge that uh, you're supposed to copy down if you're reading the play. You're supposed mm. to kind of lift out of their context and use. And although they're longer, the parables, the stories are a little bit like that too. They're kind of um, pieces of poetry that you can pull out of their context um, and read or, or recite or use um, kind of in and of themselves but we've really played quite heavily on the fact that it's this um, idea of telling stories that links uh, the two twins together. Yeah it's fascinating that relationship between the two of them because in some ways they are they're the most fully fleshed out characters you know they could they could both they could both be sympathetic or they could both be sort of yeah the opposite basically whereas the I feel like the others kind of move around them slightly more as cliches you know Antonio's pretty much just just a nice guy <laughs> that's his <laughs> that's his thing <laughs> and I feel like those yeah the the duet between those two is fast I just want to read the like the prequel can someone write me a prequel please because I want to know like why was the first husband okay why didn't the first husband make him go crazy yeah God, that's such a good idea. Oh, my goodness. I yeah. need to know this. Who can I commission to do this for me? Um, yeah. Anyway, so um, what about your kind of um, your entry points and your sort of special area of interest? It's really interesting, then, this idea of sound effects. Like, what, what is it about Malfi that pulls that pulls that that into the story? What what would the sound effects have been? Are they particularly uh, unusual? Yeah. Why did why did it grab you? 
it started for me with the, the scene where the Duchess is um, giving birth, and this is all very hush-hush, uh, and this can't be revealed in public because, of course, that would expose the fact that she's married. Um, so there's a moment where uh, Bossola and Antonio are both in the darkness, and, and they can't really see and they can't really hear, and they're speculating about what this sound in the night might be, whether it's an owl or whether it is a scream. And I really found this just a beautiful piece of staging. This idea that actually the audience don't know what's happening. We suspect that what we're hearing is the Duchess screaming. Mm. Um, but I was interested in what it would mean to play around with that, to have um, Bossola here and Antonio not here, to have there be no sound at all, um, to basically thinking about the many possibilities of what you could do to make that scene more uncanny, more distressing. Um, and I really like the idea of a sound effect that became you know, essential to the plot of the play, that actually, if he can identify this as a, a scream of um, labour, then in many ways she is exposed. Mm. This was very early days in what actually has ended up being a, a much bigger project on sound effects. But um, that scene stands out as a moment where I started to think I really need to read more and think more about sound. Um, and and the many ways to do that. The other moment, of course, is the echo scene, which is a, a really uh, mm. famous part of Duchess of Malfi, which comes in Act 4 when um, we hear or don't hear or half hear uh, a, a voice that might be the Duchess's or might just be an echo. Um, and I've always found that a really arresting and and really very sad part of the play. It's interesting that those sound uh, stories are told off stage because I'm sort of racking my brains through the mostly Shakespeare that I kind of know. And stuff happens off stage, you know, things, char characters die off stage and really big moments happen. But they're often someone rushing in and going, my Lord, she's died. <laughs> you know, Ooh. it's not often that you actually, as an audience, you're, you're with the character work, piecing together what's happening off stage using sound. Like, it's yes. really I can see why it got you. <laughs> oh, I mean, absolutely. It's become a, a real obsession and, and fascination of mine. Uh, a parallel for, for um, Shakespeare nerds like me might mm -hmm. be um, hearing uh, Lady Macbeth uh, die off stage. We hear mm -hmm. a, a cry of good women, which is um, the reaction to something bad having happened. Um, and it takes a couple of beats for us to find out what that bad thing was. So it is something Shakespeare is playing with too. Um, but yes, I could go on and on about sound effects. Um, <laughs> I, I won't. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And that, I suppose, translates sort of uh, in an interesting way to digital performance, because that mm. is a, a, a totally different way that we can deal with sound effects. You know, normally in a for us, in a th even theatre, inverted commas, in a bookshop or a park or something, we would be playing in recorded sound. So we'd be recording the cast or finding recordings that we could use. But there's something slightly different about Zoom soundtracking of a of a of a scene. Yes, that idea of soundtrack has been really fascinating. So mm. um, thinking about how we we un we sort of lay music underneath, I suppose. Um, it's something that we've really been playing with. So we've been thinking a lot about film as we've been making this production. Um, and in some ways, therefore, it seems really natural to use a sort of film score. It's not underneath the whole thing, but maybe for transitions or 
or sort of moments of heightened tension we've been thinking about music. And the capacity to control that really precisely is something that digital performance gives you um, that has just been amazing to play with. It's also been really easy to, um, to change your mind about things, to mm. sort of play something, see how it works. No, that's not quite right. Uh, let's put in a, a different sound or a different music. Um, it's been really experimental and I've, I've absolutely loved that. It's been a great part of rehearsal. It's, yeah, it's amazing fun. I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the kind of parallels with the um, with the original staging that actually just having a rep company, you know, this would be the this is the second show that our rep company have made, and and that came apart completely because of the digital performance and the innovation in digital performance. But actually, it does sort of link back to the King's Men, who are you know they they're probably not going to find it, find someone new to play the Duchess. They're probably going to look around and go, oh, you. You know, it's kind of it's a similar <laughs> process. It is, and and I think um, it's been collaborative in a way that I found just incredibly rewarding. I mean, I'm so lucky to have this chance to to talk to actors and and especially actors who are used to working together. They know each other's strengths. They're so willing to offer suggestion and take suggestions from each other um, in a way that I think is unique to rep companies to people who are used to working together and see themselves as a team and uh, are very happy to work as an ensemble in that way to allow each other to shine. I think, yes, again, a sort of, as you say, a beautiful parallel to the Kingsmen, this idea that mm. they know how each other work, you know, they know, mm. they know their strengths and, and that's been really lovely. Oh, it's fascinating. I can't let you go then without just quickly touching on uh, the single word I've written in my notes, gore. <laughs> it's famously um, uh, icky. How are you tackling it? What What do you think is the place in the play for all the kind of the creepy bits? Yeah, there's, there's a whole world to unpack in there, really. But how, how are we taking it in our version? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've we've had some really fun um, experiences already thinking about um, stage blood um, and had some of the cast members kind of whipping that up in their kitchens, playing with treacle, playing with food colouring. We have um, many bloody moments in the play. Um, so it's from sort of little localised moments, Antonio getting a nosebleed, to huge um, kind of bloodbaths in the, the final scene. Um, and certainly we are currently figuring out um, how to do that, how to do that without uh, ruining all our costumes, how yeah. to do that and make it look um, interesting. We, we are very stylized in this production. So um, I was about to say how to make it look realistic, but in many ways, that's not <laughs> what we're trying to do. We're yeah. trying to to make it look um, frightening, but kind of aestheticized. One thing, I think maybe the first thing I ever said when, we were talking about this production uh, right at its inception was there is a, a horrible fusion here of beauty and gore of kind mm. of death and um, I suppose glamour. And I, I, I think we've, we've really hit on that throughout the production, but certainly when people die, there's a lot of talk of, of diamonds and pearls and um, there's, there's a resistance to to gore as something horrible and it's almost kind of elevated into something beautiful. So these are all questions that are flying around. Uh, the cast are in rehearsal as we speak, uh, playing with 
um, some of those ideas for that mm. big bloodbath scene, actually. Um, so it has the added um, uh, aspect that we're not in a stage and we've got a team of uh, stage managers who can come and clean up all the mess as well, of course. All our actors absolutely. are in their spare bedroom. So we're going to need a lot of plastic sheeting or we're going to need to be clever about it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We don't want anyone not getting their uh, deposits back on their flats because no, of their mouthy blood. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Um, oh, great. Well, I guess I better let you get back to them then. What if you turn up now and they've just, they're all covered in ketchup and you're like, guys. I mean, it, anything <laughs> I could happen. Half an hour. <laughs> Um, okay, well, yeah, I will. Uh, I will let you get back to them. But um, thank you so much. That was, um, yeah, that was really interesting. Can't wait to to see what comes out of it. Thank you for listening to the Creation Theatre podcast. You can find more episodes and all the latest creation news at creationtheatre.co.uk. Thank you.